Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. <laughs> I was just trying, I'm sitting here, it's only been a day for me, right, because I try to record one of these every day, and I can't remember where I left off. I know, I probably could have listened to it, but anyways... I'm pretty sure, well, anyways, it doesn't really matter. I What I spent a lot of time thinking about yesterday was, like, why David did it. Why David did it. I mean, that story that Nathan came up with, and like I said, I think, I think <clears throat> excuse me, I think Nathan was known for his stories. I think his his illustrations were in the narrative most of the time much like a rabbi would be in the New Testament. I think prophets were were bent toward the narrative, even though most of the time they're pictured in these narratives as the one who, quote, brings the judgment. But really what they're doing is they're, they're exposing what sin opens you up for. It, I, and I know, I do, I know, I know I'll probably get, well, some will really push back on that, but but prophets, what what they do, what what they you know repeat from from what they see in heaven, what what the you know what the quote the voice of God brings them, they see it, and yes, it is the voice of God, but it's not it's not it's not a condemnation that is that is irreversible. It's it's a revealing. The prophet reveals. What's now open? What the what the person or the nation or or yeah, person or nation, whatever that relationship is, what they've opened themselves up to, what they're now going to have to do battle against, or what they're going to have to uh, be aware of in their lives, because they've they've opened this up, and now they have to do they have to do the battle. And how do we do battle? You do battle one or two ways. You either rest in the presence of God or you joyfully worship in the presence of God and you trust him and his abilities and his goodness to override what the enemy is now, what you opened up the enemy to do. Because so much of what the prophet does in the Old Testament, and I believe what what we would call the prophetic ministry is supposed to do, is is the Lord exposes the bad things so that they can expose what the enemy is trying to do. It's a, it's a it's a ministry of exposing the enemy's plans so that you can do battle against it, so that you can repent, <clears throat> so that you can repent and and reverse the curse. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a I'm a Red Sox fan, so that was back in the day. Reverse the curse. <clears throat> I'm going to take a drink. Hang on. So Nathan is Nathan is doing his job. But but as I as I said, I think with Samuel when he approached Saul in a in a time of of crisis where Saul had opened himself up to some pretty bad stuff, I you can't get your personality out of it. And I think that Given the the new again the nuances of the of the um, 
grammar. Thank you. <laughs> I do love that little engineer in my head. Given the nuances of, of the grammar, you get this sense by just reading the English, right? You get the sense that David was like in that, sorry, that Nathan was in David's face, that there was this ugliness that happened. But I do think that there was some personal, there was some personal offense that Nathan carried with him. I think, I think Nathan, Nathan was dumbfounded at what David had done. I think Nathan was, um, Nathan dealt with disappointment. I don't think God was disappointed because I don't, I don't think he feels that, that deep sense of offense that disappointment usually comes from. I think God understood what was going on and he understood the brokenness that was within David that caused him to reach out to, in essence, rape a woman that, that he didn't need to rape if it was just a matter of lust and feeling horny or wanting wanting whatever. Like sexually, he had options that really weren't pleasing to the Lord either. I don't think I don't think God wanted anyone to have more than one wife. I don't think his his pattern that he set up in Genesis at creation did not. I, I don't I don't think I don't think he opened it opened it up to more than one wife. So David's already in in a position where he's opened himself up for trouble and and the Lord has already like he knows this. He knows this because because of the pattern, because of of Genesis, because of um th- the stories of Abraham, the story of I mean, you know, other Noah only had one wife. Uh Joseph only had one wife. Um uh uh Bob, what do you what what? Golly day, there's another one I want to throw out there. Oh, Moses only had one wife. Joshua only had one wife. Like the pattern is there. David knew the pattern. He also knows that when when people had more than one, there was trouble. But he he culturally just just went with it. And again, I don't think I don't think I don't think the Lord was like, you know, you're an evil person, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna help you. It was it was a choice that David made. It was a choice that he lived out, and the negative ramifications of those choices were David's choices to have. And the goodness of God can override them, and the goodness of God and the mercy of God can can frustrate all of the negatives. But in the end, it's your choice to deal with it. And a lot of times. We have no idea of the full force of the negative impact of the choices of the of the sinful choices that we make is because God's goodness and mercy keeps it from from us feeling the full impact. But sometimes when you're when you're in a position where you are exposed to what somebody else has done, you become offended and you want them to feel the full impact of of the choices that they've made. And you, in essence, pronounce that judgment on them. And that's what I think we see here with, with Nathan speaking with David. I think he was personally offended at what David did. I think he knew the ramifications of David's multiple wives and concubines that it was having on the lives of the women and the children that were his wives and concubines. 
I think there's evidence within the, within the narrative that Nathan had a spiritual role in raising the the children of David. That's why some of it, some of David's uh, children were priests. They they worked in the in the tabernacle, and I believe he had a huge influence on Solomon because I believe he interacted with, in essence, the harem and the the gaggle of children that that would run around. So when he did this, and he killed Uriah, and he took Bathsheba on, Nathan became a father figure for for Bathsheba. And I think over time, over that nine-month period, like I said, I, I think he just started putting together the rumors. He started putting together the timing. And he went to the Lord, and I think he was like, you know, what's going on here? And the Lord showed him. He didn't show him so that he could pronounce judgment on him. He showed he showed Nathan so that he could expose what David had had opened himself up to from the enemy, so that David could be aware of what's going on, so that he could guard against it. It was not a foregone conclusion. God does not throw out judgments and then say there is nothing you can do to stop this, because I'm going to turn my back on you. I will never help you out in this area. You are gonna you know are you are gonna die. So I, I know I do know that 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 presentation of what the prophet does and how God I, I know that for some that are listening, this this is a very difficult thing for you to hear because because you've never been exposed to that kind of mindset. But if you've listened to all my podcasts, you've heard it periodically. And I I bring it up again because because I do think it's really important. I think that that God has been good throughout time, not just all the time. I don't think we throw the fact that God is good on top of bad things and say, well, it doesn't matter if it's bad. It doesn't matter if people die because God's righteous and he's still good. So those those people who died clearly deserve to die because God knows everything. And so he killed them because they deserved it. I just I just I can't. I used to. I can't anymore. It's just not it's not who I see. It's not who I see in Jesus, and I believe Jesus represented the Father and and represented who the Father was throughout time, and I think that the people that often that we call heroes in the Old Testament, I think a lot of them tapped into Jesus, i.e. God, and they they understood love, and they understood who God really was, and I think David was one of those people, and here we are in the story of David, and... <laughs> And that was a 10-minute transition. <laughs> it's a good thing it's my podcast. I can I can do what I want. Anyways, if you got more questions on that, as always, feel free to email me. And uh, I know I'm pre-recording all of this stuff because for me, I like to tell the story. And so I do all my research on the narratives first. I write out all my notes, and then I just tell the story. And then we use those extra uh, podcasts. The uh, I interact with your emails um, in real times. Uh, yeah, in real time. So you want to send me questions and comments, and and you you maybe maybe they're negative comments. <gasps> I can't believe anybody would say anything negative. It's a wonderful story. Yeah, I know, but I say I say things like what I just said now and. And it messes with people's perception of who God is. 
<laughs> and well, that can get a little personal. I understand. So let it fly and let's have some fun. So it says that, uh, uh, sorry. So we ended, we ended with the, with the story, right? And it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So I don't think David, I don't think Nathan told him he was making the story up. I think he, he probably framed this to make it sound like this was something he ran into as he was traveling the country. And he just was, uh, I, this is because that's what I would do. And like I said, that my imagination has to be there. I know that, I know that uh, uh, there are different ways to approach this and you are more than welcome to do that in your imagination. But I think, I think Nathan tried to bring this up as casually as possible because he wanted to, to have all of David's defenses down. He wanted David to listen and not, not be passive. I think David, I think Nathan was wise in that way. I still think that Nathan had a personal offense in this, but you know he's he's mature, he's wise, and he knows how to how to present things. Uh, you know he's smart about it, so he does it. I think he framed it in such a way that he you know he, David thought he was telling him a real story, and David David was just irate because he identified with every aspect of this story, and he was like, man, like there is we mm, we are gonna bless the snot out of that guy for for losing his his sheep we're going to make sure he gets lots of them and that man we're going to kill him now it is not a death sentence to steal a lamb from your neighbor it's 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 punishable but it's not a death sentence unless the king says so then you're going to die so Nathan probably hung his head at, and thought, okay, here we go. David, you're the man. Again, I don't know how he presented it. Did he yell it? You know, there's, there's, you can interpret it, you know, the phrasing of it different ways. It's intense. You're the man. And then he goes into, uh, I don't know, an explanation. He reminds David of his journey. And he and then he goes through the, like the he's like the first thing, the first thing sin does is it hinders the flow of blessing. You don't see it. You don't understand how good God is. You start to see yourself as missing out on something, as not getting all the stuff that you deserve. Right? He goes like this: "You're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says." <laughs> Now, again, I think God, I think the Lord God of Israel had said this. He said it to expose what the enemy, what, what David had opened himself up to. I don't think he was saying it. I, I, I don't, anyways, I already covered all that. Okay, just, Bob, just read the verses. I will. Okay. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's, master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. 
And all of this has been too little. I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this, what is evil in his, in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says out of your household. This, this is I, It's tough for me to read because it says, I'm going to bring calamity on you. I don't think God does that. And I know some of you are like, well, Bob, that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. That's what it, that's what God does. I, I just don't see it. I don't see it in the life of Jesus. And I don't think God changed his character between the Old and the New Testament. I don't think he did. I just, I, 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 I can't because if he changed his character from one covenant to the other, then he can change his character again after we get to heaven. You can say, well, he, you know, after a millennial, he can say, well, you know, I've done it before. Now I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a new covenant. Surprise! It's just, uh, and I know, I know, the, I know, theologians are like some of some of you are just freaking out. That's fine. That's fine. Lay it on me. I just keep going back to Jesus. I'm going to bring calamity. Sorry, read the read the rest of it. I'm going to bring calamity on you before your eyes. I will take your wives. And give them to the one that's close to you, and and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Really? You really think that God, a good God, a good father, is advocating rape? You really think that's what he's doing? You really think that God's saying, I am going to take your wives and give them to someone who's close to you, which which means someone from your family. And I'm going to have them, I, God, the good God, I'm going to have them raped in broad daylight because what you did, you did in secret, and I'm going to make sure that what, what you did, everybody can see in broad daylight. Yes, we're just going to rape all your wives. Honestly, people, what are we thinking when we think God did this? You really think this is the God that you love and serve? And and I know, I know, because I was there. A lot of people sit back and say, yeah, yeah, that's God. Yeah, God can do that. God is good all the time. And he can, he can, you know, maybe those women did. Oh, please, please don't even start with me that they deserve this. And don't put it on David. Oh, well, David did that, so, you know, they're going to be raped. You know, that's on David. That's blood on David's hands. No. No. Oh, my gosh. I just can't. I can't even anymore. I can't do it anymore. I can't believe that this is the judgment of God. Sorry. I, I like, redlined all over my little meter here because I just, I just, oh, can you tell? there's no way this is the plan of God. There is a way that it's the plan of the enemy. There is a way that what God told Nathan was this is what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to what? He wants to destroy the family. Oh, yeah. Now that sounds like something the enemy loves to do. He wants to destroy relationship and connection between David and his wives and David and his family. Yep, that definitely sounds like the enemy. 
David, you've forgotten the blessings that the Lord's given you as though what you have is not enough. And he would give you more if you ask for it. Yeah, that sounds like something somebody's done who's just life has been going so well that you forget to see the life around you as a blessing. You start to lose your gratitude. You start to stand in worship, but you don't really connect to the presence of God. You just you're singing great songs, you're dancing great dances, you're you're you know in moments of prayer, you're having you're having a really good experience, a really good time connecting with other people and in community, but you re, you haven't tapped into the the presence of God because you enter His gates with thanksgiving. And then you enter his courts with praise. If you don't start with thanksgiving, it's not happening as well as it could. And David had forgotten all the things that God had blessed him with. He was just used to it. He was living the dream. It's amazing. So he exposed himself to all kinds of things because of a lack of of gratitude, a lack of awareness of what God has done. It's it's, It's... it's a pattern we all have. So Nathan reminds him, listen, you're, the enemy's coming after your family. He's going to destroy your, your relationship. You've opened up your family and, in essence, the nation to violence. I'm going to bring, I know, uh, the calamity. Well, no, where's the, where's the, where's the verse about the sword? You did in secret. You st- oh, there it is. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took, took his wife. You killed them with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. He's like, you've opened yourself up to constant warfare. The peace and the negotiation and the diplomacy that you've done, and you've, you've been blessed by God with, in the wisdom and the way that you've written things out and and negotiated things. It's been amazing, David. But now you've opened yourself up to violence. Maybe not so much in the nation, but within the nation. Because your family is going to become impacted by your decision. And probably implicated in that is also the family of Saul. You, it, it, you oh, David. You have no idea what this choice was, and you didn't need to make it. I mean, why did David make this choice? We we kind of hit on it a couple times because it's fascinating to me. I don't know. Was it a control thing? Was it a power thing? Was it because he wasn't at war, and this was like the third or fourth time that, you know, a third or fourth year where he wasn't in battle where he liked to be? He didn't feel like a man. He had lost he had lost whatever. He knew he was a little slower. He was curious. I don't I don't know. I don't know. There's so men are men, you know, men and their egos are so complicated. We tr- we try not to. We try to pretend we're not, but we are. And they're so sensitive. Holy smokes, are we sensitive? Oh my word. And then and then we get all like bravado about it right i'm not hurt or fine you know i won't i won't do it ever again anyways 
<laughs> I don't know, man. It's it's just oh, there's so much in there that that we don't always know. So then, so so he says, "What you did in secret, I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel." It, oh. <laughs> and David says to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." So David David's repentance is immediate. Like David knows what to do. David immediately connects to the heart of the Father while Nathan's talking to him. And and it's it's just it's just immediate. Like I, I just I love it. You know, sometimes you you interact with somebody and you tell them what their choices have done to you, right? That we can make this more personal. You talk to your spouse or to your child or to your best friend or to somebody at church, and you're like, you know, what you did really hurt me. And it's always for me, it's always nice when they immediately recognize what they've done, and they they whether whether you know they're surprised by it or not. Sometimes they had no idea, but but to have that opportunity to reconcile reconcile right away is a good thing. I know sometimes, you know, you want to tell them how bad they hurt you because you're actually offended. You haven't actually worked through things and you want them to feel hurt. And that's a completely different conversation. And and at some level, I think Nathan was kind of feeling that. Like, like no, like, no, you don't repent yet because I'm going to tell you more. <laughs> Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But literally, this was an offense punishable by by death. So right away we see God's forgiveness and God's goodness coming in to take away the full impact of the sin. This is what God likes to do. He's taken away your sin and you're not going to die. This is this is God. This is a good God. This is the Father God. This is Jesus. <laughs> and then I think this is what I really, and I know this is harsh, but I think Nathan's offense comes in here and he says, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After that, Nathan went home. Wow. That's, that's pretty crazy. But again, I, when I look at it, I don't think God kills people, but he does give his people the ability to curse. I mean, even Jesus reiterates that. He says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. I've given you this authority. And he, and he exampled that authority by killing the fig tree. When the guys came back the next day, the fig tree was dead. He was, he was like, that's what happens. When you curse something to death, it dies. I've given you that ability. You have to understand the authority you have. I, here, this will blow your mind. I think, I think Peter is the one who killed Ananias and Sapphira. He cursed them to death. 
I don't think God does that. Because it, God would have to be consistent. And in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right, he's like, you you have, no, oh, I, should, I should have looked this up. I didn't know I was going in this direction. But in essence, he, you know, he accused him of lying to the Holy Spirit. And then he, you know, he curses the man and he dies. And then his wife comes in and he goes, you know what? They just got back. And now you, you've lied to me as well. So now you're dead. And this is how I believe, you know, from the, from the way I read it. At that point, great fear struck all the people and they no longer went into they no, no longer went into the apostles. They they waited outside. Yeah, I imagine they would. Why? Because Peter can kill people. That's why. The power of life and death was in the tongue. I believe that if if when God's involved, everyone always feels welcomed. They feel loved. They feel invited to drop their sins and to do the right thing. That's what God does, and that's what God did here. He forgave the sin, he took away the sin, and he took away the punishment of death. The rest of it, the rest of it, he would, you know, David was going to have to be aware of because David opened himself up to it. The violence, the deceit, the, the sexual deviance, the rebellion, it would, you know, within the family, the, the, you know, yeah, whatever. I mean, there's lots of things that you can go through that list, and it's like, wow, all that stuff is now, all that relational stuff is has been broken, and now David has to work at restoring those connections. <clears throat> so after Nathan had gone home, the quote, the Lord struck the child of Uriah's wife, <clears throat> and it became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up off the ground, but he refused. He would not eat any food. He was he was fasting and praying. And I do wonder in all of this, <clears throat> When I read it, it's like, okay, so David's fasting and praying. Sorry, I, I know. I know that that, long, that that pregnant pause was me shifting again as to which direction I wanted to go. God, I will go back to the one I thought of first, but I wanted to stay consistent here. <clears throat> Just so you know what goes on. In my beady little head. So what blocked God's ability to heal the child? I mean, David David was doing all the right things. He had repented. He was forgiven. He was praying. He was fasting to even, you know, to focus his, his attention toward the prayers. And God loves to heal. Jesus shows us that. Why did the child die? I believe that it was Nathan who, who blocked the healing from occurring. Because Nathan had cursed the child. Nathan had pronounced death on him. And I don't know where Nathan was during this time. But he wasn't with David and he wasn't with the child. 
And Nathan had his own stuff to work through. And on the seventh day, the child died. And the attendants that were there, they were scared to death to tell David about it because they thought, good grief. If he's lying in sackcloth and refuses to eat for seven days while the child's sick, what in the world is he going to do when he finds out the child's dead? And and they're right. They thought he might do something even more desperate. And that implication is he probably would kill himself. But David sees them, sees his attendants whispering amongst themselves. He's David's David's aware of atmosphere shiftings uh, because he's. I mean, we all are, but I just think often musicians are have a little more heightened sense to it because when they're playing, they tend to play. I don't want to say they play to the crowd, but they un, they understand where the crowd's going and they they give it more, like they. They enhance what you're doing. That's what you know a good worship leader will do, and that's why some churches that are very much in a time crunch, because you know they have three services or they're online, so you know uh, they're you know they have the one hour, whatever, and every every worship set is 22.4 seconds long, and every message is you know 18 and a half minutes long, and all that kind of stuff like that. And I'm not saying that those are evil or sinful things. It's just you lose the opportunity to do this type of, of worship where where you sense the atmosphere and you can just you can enhance it. Like you can say, all right, this is where the people are at. This is what this is what got them. Let's make that an on ramp to a highway. Like I will just bring them there. So I just think musicians tend to be more sensitive to that and not just worship leaders. Uh, good concerts are that way as well. Uh, more so, I think, old school concerts because they had more freedom to sing what they wanted. And now concerts generally are, are programmed events, exact same song. The, it's all about the lights and the, and the explosions and the, the contraptions and the, all that kind of stuff that goes on. It's not, it's not about the musician reading the crowd and funneling more into what they want. But that's a whole nother story. But anyways, I, I just think David David's aware of the, the, the shift in the atmosphere, uh, the, the dread. That's what he senses, right? He's praying. So he's really connected to heaven. <clears throat> he's really connected to the heart of the Father. He understands that the Father's forgiven him. He understands that that he's he's got results of his choices that that are going to be part of his life for a while and and he's going to have to battle those things because not only you know it's it's not just David who can be like well I've repented and now all that stuff is gone he opened him he opened up all of these relationships to the influence of the enemy and now they have choices to make to allow that influence to continue or to not allow it to continue and many of them are unaware that they're starting to move in this way because the enemy is so good at deceiving and so good at being subtle. And they think they're thinking logical thoughts. Their, their, their rebellion, their inner rebellion, their sexual deviation, their, um, their violence that they, that they want to do against other family members or against other countrymen, all of which we'll read about as we continue this epic story. But they have choices now to make as well. 
And David can try and shepherd them, and David can try to influence them, but it's still going to be their choice. And David opened them up to those choices to have to make. He took a level of protection, a level of of um, access away when he chose to kill Uriah and then marry Bathsheba. And I think it's interesting that Nathan actually divides those two things up, and he starts with the death of Uriah because killing people is the bigger issue here I, because I, I mean, again, this, these are nuances that are, that are known in the culture of, of literature. Uriah is the, the worst offense. If you want to level them up, it's a worse offense because he killed somebody and that is not something God does. And then the second offense was taking Bathsheba as his wife because he didn't have to do that. He could have easily just said, let's take care of Bathsheba. In other words, put her on a retirement plan, put her on a retainer, give her a, a monthly stipend, make sure that her child uh, gets educated because her child would have been, uh, she she would have been, not discredited, Bob, but start with a D, D uh, despondent. Yep, she probably would have been, but that's not the word you're looking for. She outcast. See, it wasn't a D word. Thank you. Appreciate you coming up with that, uh, Bob. You're uh, you're right on target today. She would have been an outcast because she would have had a child that that everyone would have known Uri- wasn't Uriah's because Uriah had been in town, but it was a it was a big deal. Everyone knew that Uriah didn't go sleep with his wife. All the attendants knew. The guards knew. The men that came with him knew. Everyone knew he didn't sleep with her, and she gave birth, you know, nine months later. Actually, eight months now from when Uriah came home, and probably even more than that, or less than that, probably closer to seven months by the time that all transpired, and Uriah is dead, and and she marries David a week after. Like it's it's close to seven months, and she's giving birth. But everybody's just going to remain quiet about this, because it's the king. But he could have taken care of her. He could have said, you know what? I." He could have taken responsibility. He could have just done that and said, I did this. I did this. Like, what? what's my, What's? what do I have to do? Like, I'm going to go before God. I'm going to go before the priest. I'm going to go before the prophet. I'm going to admit what I did. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to do the right thing. Whatever it takes, we want to protect her. We want to protect the baby because I did this. I did something that was, that was, unbelievably inappropriate and and evil. I did evil to her. I raped her. I took advantage of her. I took advantage of her youth. I took advantage of my position. He had a lot of options. David's becoming uh, very aware of that during the seven days of fasting and praying. So when when, when the attendants hear that the babies died, they're dreading like this is this is a big deal. So what do they do? Well, they don't want to do anything. David looks up. He says, mm, "What's going on? What are you guys? What? What? Why are you talking amongst yourselves? Sorry, did you <laughs> did you hear my furnace just kick on?" He goes, "Uh, I mean they they." Yeah, I mean, in the moment, 
a news comes in, the first person delivers the news to the head attendant, and the head attendant's like, oh, no. And the other attendants are like, what's what's going on? Like, they all kind of come over to, to the doorway. What's going on? What's going on? The child's dead. What? Yeah, we need to tell David. I'm not telling him. What if, what if, look at him. He's eaten in seven days. His elders have come in and tried to get him off the floor. He won't even go eat with his family. He won't have any soup. We tried, we tried sneaking soup into his water glass. Like it, it, he won't, he won't take it. We don't know what to do. If he finds out the child's dead, oh my gosh! Like what's going to go on? Hey guys, what are you talking about? And they, they, they don't, they don't say a word. So he asked the question: Is the child dead? Did the child die? Yes, yes, he is dead. And David got up. He's like, all right. He goes into his wash basin that was there. He scrubs up. Because sackcloth and, and ashes that would irritate the skin, uh, you know, made you incredibly dusty. So in essence, he, he took a bath. He put on lotions, oils, whatever those were. I'm sure that they were um, essential oils, which is, you know, why so many people love selling them. Because, oh, David... David, you know, he he was an essential oil person. Put on these lotions. He changed his clothes. He went down to the tabernacle, and he worshipped. And I believe that there was a there was a sense of release. He was like, "All right, it's time to move on. Let's sing. Let's dance." Can you can you picture the the guys in the tabernacle? They're just playing along. Everyone knows David's been depressed. David's been fasting. He's been praying. They're all aware of that, right? These are full-time musicians. They're they're around the the palace people. They're around the attendants. You got a you know, four thousand gatekeepers that also would have been very much aware of where David is and who's in and out of the who's in and out of the the tabernacle. And then David comes walking in. He looks fresh. His hair's combed back, freshly oiled. He smells great. He looks great. He's wearing he's wearing his normal clothes. He comes into the tabernacle to worship, and they're all like, "Whoa!" Like David's here. Then he went to his own house. He's like, "All right, let's eat." And they served him food, and they were excited to do so. And and finally, his attendants these are these are people that he's close to, people that that have been a part of his life for a long time. And they were like, "What what changed?" You know, why are you acting like this? What, like, like you spent all this time before your child was dead. Now your child's dead and you're not mourning. You're not weeping. You're not fasting like everyone else would have done. Like you're actually doing the opposite of what normal people do. (laughs) And he said, well, when the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious enough to me and let the child live. But now he's dead, so why should I go on fasting? I can't bring him back to life. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I I leave it up like I went to God on this. Something, something blocked my prayers. I don't know what it was, but... I'm not going to pray for resurrection. They had no they had no concept of resurrection at this. This was something Jesus taught us that we had the power to do while he was here. 
They had no concept of resurrection, so he didn't pray for it, which is is an option, right? I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of people throughout history have said, well, resurrections don't happen anymore, so we don't pray for them anymore. But I also, I literally know people who have raised the dead. And it does happen. And it comes from this heart of love and it comes from a heart of faith that says, yeah, God's, God does this. And, 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 and I agree, it's not 100%, but it's often. It's by the hundreds. We know people that have raised hundreds of people from the dead. But that's all another story for another day. Oh, man, I might get some emails on that. Sweet Lord, here we go. So then David went to his wife, Bathsheba, and he comforted her. Then he slept with her again, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. So that's like a nine-month verse at least, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy how time flies in these, in these phrases. But, you know, I wonder through this whole deal, like what's going on with Bathsheba? Like how did she feel after she's raped by David? And she goes home, and she's hanging out. And I'm sure it was a night to remember. I mean, it had to be. It had to be. She had to be thinking all kinds of thoughts. <laughs> now I don't know what the, all those thoughts would be. I'm not a woman. Shocking, I know, but it's true. I'm not. But I do wonder. I do wonder about that first month after. I mean, she's doing her normal things. But, but she clearly has a memory. She has an experience. And David said, I, I, I believe David said all kinds of wonderful, sweet things to her. How much he loved her, how, how attracted he was to her, how when he saw her on the rooftop, uh, you know, he was, he was immediately just drawn to her. And, you know, you can go back to that podcast, but I think what he saw in her was her identity he saw in her the purity and innocence and, and purpose that God had, had placed on her. And he should have been drawn to protect it. And instead, he he raped it. Instead, he wanted to be a part of it. And often, I think people's internal sensories and, and discernment uh, get misinterpreted as sexual attraction. Uh, and they and they start looking at their at at their relationships that they're in, and they start seeing all the negative, right? They 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 lose perspective on who they're with, and they want to be with somebody they're not. So he said all these wonderful things, and she heard all these wonderful things, and and now she's a, not really alone. I'm sure she had a, a, an attendant or two that she that was around her house, but in essence, she's alone in her thoughts because she doesn't know what's what's going to happen. Like, is he going to call again? And if he calls, will I go or should I go or should I have went? Was it my fault because I was on the rooftop? I, maybe I should bathe somewhere else. But I've always bathed on the rooftop, and I wasn't I wasn't being seductive, and yet he saw me. And I mean, there's you know maybe, maybe I need to get a uh, you know a covering of some sort. I thought I was protected uh, with the with the trees that were or the bushes or the whatever was built around it, but clearly I'm not. And was it, oh man, was it, was it his fault? And I'm sure sometimes she was probably angry at him. And then the time for a period comes around and it's a day late and it's two days late and it's five days late. 
And then it's a week late, and she's like, okay, I've never gone this late. I need to. I'm pregnant. Now what do I do? So she sends him word. Sends her attendant. Can you bring this message to David? And that attendant tells another attendant who told the other attendant who got to the courtroom attendant or courthouse, or courthouse, the the throne attendant and who told the lead attendant who brings the messages to David. So David eventually finds out she's pregnant. Then that whole plan has to be considered. And his whole plan was get him to sleep with her, get Uriah back here, put him to bed with, with Bathsheba, and all of this goes away. And it didn't go away. And then he he just he murders him. And 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 like I said, I, I think he had implied this before or this had been done before, or maybe Joab had done this before. There was something about killing Uriah that that somehow seemed logical to him. And maybe he had been around a lot of leaders from other countries that had taken out their problems. And now, now in his mind, this was an acceptable thing. I don't know, but somehow that became acceptable. And, and Uriah dies. And so she loses a, her husband. Did she feel relief? Did she feel guilt? I mean, it's it's... It's got to be. It's got to be complicated. The level and intensity of the emotions, but they're all over the place. Uriah's dead. Well, he'll he won't know that I cheated on him. But Uriah's dead, and I got pregnant because I got pregnant because it's my fault. I mean, it's oh the depth that she had to go through. Has to be it. it, it if, oh, it's not fascinating for me in a positive way. It's fascinating to me because because who knows? And I know books have been written on it. Um, you know, on the life of Bathsheba, and you can go find them. But I just think it's better sometimes to just use your imagination. Like, what would she be going through? And then she finds out her. You know, well, like I said, she finds out her her husband's dead, and then. You know, uh, a week later, after the morning's over and he's been buried and he's, I'm sure, given this military funeral and and it's just this place of honor. Then David steps in and says, I'll take her as my wife. Uh, I'll take care of her. She'll be, you know, covered by by me. This is this will be fine. Like he he sets himself up as this. You know, the, the PR on this was David's, David cares for the nation. David cares for the widow. David cares for, you know, for his men. Dave, this is this is the heart of David. I'm sure the PR on it was awesome. But internally, she has to be wondering, wow, what's this mean? A week after I lose one husband, I get I get to marry the king, my lover. Well, it, it, that at least the child will be taken care of, and and we'll have a home, and we'll have provision because you know we're not going to be outcasts. We're like, what would have happened if she, you know, ended up marrying someone else? It probably would have been a much lower position with much less provision because she would have been a questionable, uh, of questionable reputation. And yet, the Bible makes it clear she held no responsibility in what had happened to her. But she would have bore the cultural responsibility for what happened to her. 
And she knows all this. Like all of this is just layers into Bathsheba's world. So she gives birth. And I think, you know, at that point she had developed some sort of uh, interaction, relationship with Nathan. It's a year, year later. She probably had even heard at this point, I think she's probably heard some rumors about David and Uriah. The, the bitterness, the bickering within the harem of this beautiful young new girl. Seven months later, she gives birth. The servants of the harem, you know, let the gossip kind of kind of roll. Well, she slept with David while Uriah was at war and, and David had him killed. She probably heard that. And maybe even in a cat fight. Well, what we call cat fight. I, I know that's that's inappropriate. I'm sorry. Maybe during a time of anger or bitterness or or whatever, uh, the women, one of the women concubines, one of the foreigners, one of the, maybe one of the wives lets it fly. You know, well, it must be nice. You sleep with the king, he kills off your husband, and then you get to marry him. I don't, I don't know. I just know bitterness and offense runs deep in some people. And I don't think everything in the harem was just a pretty little thing. And it's not like they all sat around on pillows all day. They all had apartments, like one, two room, one or two rooms in within the palace, uh, up, you know, compound, not necessarily right off the throne room. They were just there, and the kids were taken care of, and there's nurseries for them to go to. In essence, nurseries, uh, you know, our our Western culture that that's what we would call it. There was education for them to do, and there was worship for them to go to, and there was prophet. You know, Nathan would be around and giving words. The priests would be available. It was there was a lot of there was food every day, and sometimes there were big family gatherings. All that would have occurred within the within the seven months. It, that she was there and, and then ultimately gave birth. And then a year later, I'm pretty sure she's pretty confident about what David did. And then and then the child brings, you know, she brings a, like, what does the child represent to her? Does she feel guilty when she looks at it? Does she feel pain? Does she feel hope? Is she happy? Does she feel joy? I mean, there is something beautiful about babies in, in their their purity and, and their their beauty as they're nursing and as they're sleeping. You just think, well, you know, the world is filled with filled with hope. Like no matter where you came from or how you started, like this is awesome. And she hears that Nathan came to see David, and she hears about the rebuke that that happened to David. And soon after that, her baby gets sick. She sees David and hears about how he's fasting and praying. And, of course, she's doing the same thing. And then the baby dies. And then David comes to her. And he comforts her. And he says things to her. And he holds her. And and ultimately, they make love again. And I have a feeling it was tender and it was kind and it was it was mutual. I don't think he raped her. I think I think there was something really intense from David's perspective of what he shared with Bathsheba, he really believed that he loved her 
deeply more than any other. And then she gets pregnant and boom, she has a son named Solomon. And again, what were those nine months like? And and what was, you know, what was the harem thinking at that point? What did Abigail think? What did Michelle think? Remember, Michelle can't have children because of the bitterness that she holds. Like this is a bitter, angry woman who's the leader of the harem. Like there's in that atmosphere that she sets, I'm sure starts to permeate. I know people where you go to certain family members or you go to certain homes and it's so filled with negativity, you just naturally become negative. Like if you're not conscious, consciously fighting it, you start to make the same cutting remarks that everyone else is making. You you spread rumors when, when you're in a culture where rumors fly and gossip flies, you start doing it. You, you, if you're not consciously battling it it just becomes a part of who you, of, of of your life because it's it's what the leadership does. It's what solid done to the nation. It's now you know David sh- is shifting that whole culture, but but Michelle is a bitter woman, and she's considered the matriarch of the of the harem. But Abigail is considered the wise one of the harem, the one that people go to for advice. And then there's one there in the middle that. David met in the wilderness and married, and and, and I mean, they're just his life is so complicated. And Bathsheba's living this in this life, and she gives birth to Solomon. And Nathan was a part of that. It's it's pretty it's pretty crazy. It's pretty amazing. It's a story that has lived through through many cultures. The story of David and Bathsheba and it's not over because the ramifications continue. And we'll continue this next week. Oh my goodness, we almost went an hour. You guys are amazing. Thanks for staying with me. Uh let's uh yeah, let's just continue the story. It's it's an epic. And you are kind of in the middle of it. Thanks for hanging. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.